the whole Bible, as we stated repeatedly, is uh, unified as a history of redemption, as the story of the covenant of uh, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Bobcast. This is episode 40. 40. You know, you too had a song called 40. It was actually based on Psalm 40. Really? Yep. Oh, I didn't know that. I never listened to you too, really. That's a shame. I, know, I've, I, I, I have the album War, but other than that, uh, I've never really dove much into them because I found like a lot of their songs kind of sound the same to me. Don't stone me. Don't stone me. Oh, <sighs> Caleb. I only listen to sacred music. That's fair. Millie Vanilli and Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch and Salt and Peppa. Sacred. <laughs> We apparently operate on different <laughs> definitions of that word. So I am Andrew Smith. <laughs> and I am Caleb Castro. And today we're going to be talking about uh, what sacredness actually is. No, we're not. No, we're not. No, we're, we're talking. We could do that, but we're not going to do that. Okay. We are going to talk about something else. And what is that something else? So we are talking about the Bible. The Bible? We are. Why? Because it's the word of God. That's good enough, I suppose. Bobcast. All right. You know, Bob Inc., you'll see three asterisks if you're looking at that page with us on 89. Three asterisks indicating a new section. Bob Inc. writes, On the basis of this mosaic law-giving, that is, on the basis of the covenant of God, which God included with the patriarchs, which he confirmed for Israel at Sinai, and which he ordained in the law of Moses, there arose in the later history of Israel, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, a threefold holy literature psalmody prophecy and wisdom literature i find it interesting he actually designates these three as uh, gifts of the holy spirit being conjoined with the natural gifts peculiar to the semitic race so he's designating the gift of the genre types here a gift of the israel people he's talking about like these type of genres let's just say for example that's like saying for us shakespeare's iambic pentameter in poetry is a gift that god has given to the english people you know to work with and god is then working through that means by the holy spirit well and it creates a context it creates parameters by which the thing that god is communicating can be understood so like for instance when you move on, Bavink begins to talk about the covenantal or legal basis of Scripture. We can look at parts of Scripture. We can particularly looking at the opening books, looking at the Pentateuch, and we can compare that with like treaties and legal documents and covenant documents. And we recognize, oh, hey, that's a covenant. And we know it's a covenant because of the way it is. You can recognize in that same way when a prophetic section uh, or a poetry section occurs in your bible you know there will be an indication like thus says the lord right mm-hmm. an oracle of the lord is being proclaimed you could have sections of poetry where you know in our english bible they're conveniently broken up and they're indented, indented over <laughs> but right. those look a little bit different in hebrew uh, we'll talk about some of that in just a moment 
So when we look at this idea of genre, this is important as we get into the bottom of page 89, Bob Inc.'s discussion of prophecy. So prophecy we often think about as being confined strictly to books of prophecy, and yet we have to realize, I mean, that's not how the Bible treats prophets or prophecy. Bob Inc. says that prophecy begins with Abraham, and then it's carried on from there. It comes into its own particularly in Samuel and after him. Now what's interesting is... We have books of Samuel that are historical books. We do not have a prophetical book of Samuel or Elijah or Elisha or these earlier great prophets. It doesn't mean they weren't prophets. It doesn't mean they didn't prophesy, for we see recorded in these historical books that they did. But it's just there is sort of a development and evolution in prophecy. There's these earlier prophets or the historical books as we know them, which are more narrative focused. The life and times of Israel basically, and the prophet's interaction there. But later on, we get into the books of prophecy, the prophecies about Israel's sin, Israel's apostasy, and God's coming punishment. Basically, God bringing charges against them on the basis of their transgression of his covenant. But also, we see in these later prophecies, we see expansion beyond just focus on Israel to focusing on the nations. You see oftentimes in the prophetic literature of how all the nations will be judged in various ways, but also at times where all the nations will come to God, will come to faith, where the word goes out to all of them. Yeah, and I want to read this section following what you just said, uh, and I find this to be a great point that he makes. You know, with all these prophecies that go out, all of them, each according to his own nature, they're being told in their own time, in their own place, preach what, though, is in essence the same word of God. So despite the vast differences in time, and even in some cases, geography, culture for these prophetical sections from Abraham into the late histories, these prophecies are all proclaiming Israel's sins and God's punishment for sins. They comfort the people of the Lord with the immutability of his covenant, the promise of his faithfulness, the forgiveness of all their unrighteousness, and they direct every eye to the joyous future in which God, under the rule of a king of the house of David, will extend his dominion over Israel and over all peoples. I think it's an important aspect to highlight because this is what we in Reformed churches will often talk about as, you know, redemptive historical preaching. Mm -hmm. You know, the Bible is a unified whole. You don't just read it in isolated contexts. This chapter says this, and it's related to this this theme in this book. You know, the books aren't hermetically sealed. They're, they're not just one-off books. You don't just go and flip through in your morning devotions, land on a verse, uh, whatever verse catches your eye, and see what that verse speaks to you today. No, there is a truth in it. There's a point to it that the author was writing it down under the direction of the Holy Spirit. But even then, it is a part of a larger story, a story that entails Genesis to Revelation in a manner lasts you know, throughout all eternity. Right. And I think a, a phrase there that really sticks out to me in what you just read, this idea of immutability of the covenant. Now, immutability is probably not a word that most people use in their everyday conversation. Even theologically, it's a word that's more often used talking about God's attributes. God is immutable, meaning that God does not change. But the same is true of the covenant. God makes his covenant with man. He condescends. He enters into this covenant and he keeps his covenants across times, across peoples, across 
across the ages, the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, are promises for us. They remain for us. That This is the word unfolding in this redemptive historical understanding for us. And to that point, the very last clause of this section on this same page of uh, 91 Bobbing says that it may be acknowledged, uh, th- this word of the Lord may be acknowledged by later generations in its authenticity. So, so much so that he cites, you know, Isaiah 34, verse 16, seek and read from the book of the Lord, not one of these shall be missing. Even today, these thousands of years after the birth of Christ, uh, we can still be sitting here talking about the scripture's authenticity and enduring word. Another genre that we go into then is psalmody. And very similar in certain manners, uh, he says it runs in parallel course with prophecy. I mean, the Bible is full of poetry. It's full of singing. You know, it's full of references to song and music. And he, he cites quite a number of passages here at the bottom of page 91 that are songs recorded in the historical books. So you have psalmody in spiritual songs, in the historical books, as well as in some of the prophetic books of Isaiah uh, and Jonah, Habakkuk. Genres of prophecy and psalmody are so close that they can even come across uh, similar in their structuring and in their form. Bobbing says in page 92, both of them come out of a powerful inspiration of the Holy Spirit in both prophecy and psalms, take into their purview the whole world of nature and history. Both regard all things in the light of the word of God, both issue in the proclamation of the kingdom of the Messiah, and both make use of the language and form of poetry. In other words, these things, whether they're prophecy or song, are revealing the will and counsel of God and the promises and faithfulness of the Lord in context of the covenant. Now, what this also can kind of tell us is that we don't want to be too rigid about our theories of genre because in many ways the genres overlap or are interchangeable or are not so clearly defined. And I mean, that's a good thing, because this means when you run across a psalm, the song of Miriam, when the uh, people of Israel came out of Egypt, you could read the song of Miriam in a poetic fashion that you might with the psalm. You can take the same principles of when you're going and reading the psalms and apply them to then these other songs of the history books. Well, and even too, perhaps these songs might have a place in church worship. You know, we can set them to music and sing them even now. Yeah, in a certain manner, actually, uh, we, we can extend that to, in general, the broad teachings and doctrinal truths of Scripture and set them to music. Not to spark a exclusive psalmody versus inclusive hymnody debate, but we've spoken a little bit about this in past episode where we can call it the word of the Lord when it's going out from the pulpit if the preacher, in doing his due diligence in studying the word of God, is speaking the truth of the word of God, even though he wrote a sermon by his own hand. And he's not being inspired by the Holy Spirit in the same way as the apostles might have, but we can still say this is the proclamation of God's word. And so the same thing when we read our liturgical forms and such, we can still say there is doctrinal truth here because it's based on the uh, what's already recorded in Scripture. So there shouldn't be a much of an issue in then setting uh, appropriate doctrinal writings, poetry, lyrics to song. To further that point, I just want to read the section from the bottom of page 92 going into page 93, where Bobbing is talking about these songs. They're expressing by the Holy Spirit the depths of one's own spiritual life, a personal spiritual state. You know, that's the context of a song, a personal spiritual state that has been formed and molded by the Spirit of the Lord and basically bursts out into song, inspired song, is a state of mind or a state of soul. 
And this comes uh, in an expression of all the soul's various parts, whether it's grief or anxiety, temptation and drive, persecution and rescue. All these various experiences, Bobbing says, are the strings on which are played the melodies of the objective words and deeds of God and nature and history, in institutions and preaching, in judgment and redemption. It is the harmony of God's objective revelation and his subjective leading, which is voiced in the song and which is sung as in the presence of God, dedicated to his honor, which calls upon all creatures to join in the paean of praise. His point here being, much like how Calvin uh, would speak of the book of Psalms, the Psalter, as being an anatomy for all parts of the soul, so too are the various other songs in scripture, an anatomy, a guidebook to all parts of the souls. And Bobbing is communicating it in a way of saying, it's like these parts of the souls, these emotions, these, these experiences are like the strings on a guitar for the Holy Spirit. So similar to the Psalms as the anatomy of parts of the soul, a chokmah, or as Bobbing calls it, the art of proverb or of wisdom, the wisdom literature, relates the will of God to the practical life and conduct. Sometimes biblical scholars might give wisdom literature or proverbs specifically the description of saying that like, you know, these are short, pithy little, uh, you know, statements. Uh, They're compact statements that you can carry around as principles of wisdom and to reflect upon. I think they're a little bit more than that. uh, And I believe Bobbing does as well, given what he had just said. It is not just pithy little truths, but the will of God practical to life and conduct resting upon the foundation of divine revelation in order to cultivate a sense of the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. You know, as biblical scholar Graham Goldsworthy would uh, speak about wisdom as being virtually the gospel in application. The gospel itself is wisdom, wisdom for life, wisdom for the knowledge of God, of who he is. Its content then is our Lord creator, sustainer, redeemer. Wisdom literature is gospel application. It's also interesting sometimes how the New Testament speaks of wisdom. For instance, the first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians talking about Christ as foolishness, the gospel as foolishness is juxtaposed against the wisdom of the world. So we need to recognize that the wisdom of scripture and as it relates to the application of other aspects of the word differs from the wisdom of the world because they can often be conflated right you can find a lot of parallel wisdom literature in the ancient near east that matches up in form as some of those in proverbs in the book of proverbs some of the things that you'll find in proverbs i mean they're not hard for an unbeliever to argue with you know they can make much use of it but what's missing is the understanding of doing these things uh, in accordance to the will of god and for his honor and glory and for the benefit of living in right relationship with our neighbor and the world around us. And I think that this is this tension then of what is worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom, the folly of worldly wisdom and the righteousness of godly wisdom is conveyed very much as the theme in Ecclesiastes. These aren't just simply things about how to live. They're things about how to live before God, sort of going back to something that Dr. Eglinton talked about us with when he was on a few months ago about Bavink orienting his theology and his work around how do we live life before God. This is the very nature of scripture itself. Bavink is really saying as much uh, at the end of this section, which you'll find on page 94, these various genre types of the preaching of the prophet and the song of the singer and the maxims of the sage 
are virtually akin to the Christian life in regards of the head, the heart, and the hand. It's building a whole person. And we see these same elements uh, at play in the New Testament. And this is where Bob Inc. goes beginning on page 94. He begins looking at the relationship between what he's already discussed in the Old Testament and the New. He says, It is only in the New that the Old Testament is revealed, and the New is already in core and essence contained in the Old. And there's this illustration of a pedestal and a statue. There's this interdependence. You need one to have the other. They complete each other. There can be a tendency in certain strands of American Christianity, especially uh, that separates, you know, the things of the Old Testament from the from the New Testament. You know, we're in this new covenant. Uh, we live by the gospel, no longer by the law, and that thing's irrelevant to us. But that's grossly incorrect. Uh, the whole right. Bible, as we stated repeatedly, is uh, unified as a history of redemption, as the story of the covenant of uh, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. We are seeing a lot of these same concepts, the same teachings, the same interests of revealing God from the Old Testament uh, in the New Testament then, uh, such as in the middle of that first paragraph on page 94 uh, in this new section. In Exodus 24-7, the law, which was the pronouncement or declaration of God's covenant with Israel, is called the Book of the Covenant. And in 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul's already speaking of a reading of the Old Testament, a reference naturally to the books of that testament. And you'll see also likewise in Peter and others appealing to uh, various elements of the Old Testament as the Word of God. The New Testament then is not differing in its message. It's only speaking then from the purview of what has been fulfilled in relation to the promises of the Old Testament. Okay, God said he would do such and such in the Old Testament, that he would provide a redeemer, a savior. And in the New Testament, they're saying, hey, that's been done. And here's now what? Here's now what is occurring. Here's now how we live. Here's now what we do. Here's now what we're supposed to understand now that Christ has come. So Bavink goes on to very briefly summarize the structure of the New Testament, describing the books in it. He brings out that there are these five historical books, those being the Gospels and Acts, 21 doctrinal books, so those are all the letters of Paul and others, and then at the end, the one prophetical book that is Revelation. Now Bavink is arguing that these books are placed by significance. The Gospel is the basis, even though for instance, chronologically, that's not necessarily where they were written. Some of Paul's letters, for instance, were probably written before the last Gospels were written. For instance, if you take that John was written later, 80s and 90s, by then Paul was already dead. So they're not placed chronologically, but they're placed by importance. The person and work of Christ is the basics of all the other apostolic effort, all the other... New Testament revelation that comes after. It's looking back to the gospel, to the person and work of Christ. So on that note, we're going to go ahead and pause for now. We are going to come back to chapter 7 one more time. There's one last issue that Bob Inc. treats in chapter 7, which is the issue of the canon of scripture. And we want to spend a little more time on that, hit that in a little more detail. So we will come back to that again next time. It is true. Well, we will be back next time unless we're not <laughs> should the lord return should the lord return maranatha so we thank you for listening to bobcast we hope you've enjoyed it we hope you've learned something as always if you haven't leave us a five-star review share with your friends get the word out send us an email bobcast at gmail.com if you have any questions and until next time toad zines toad zines
Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.